This is section 113 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 113, The Galaxy, June 1870. Memoranda by Mark Twain. Higgins. Yes, I remember that anecdote, the Sunday school superintendent said, with the old pathos in his voice and the old say look in his eyes. It was about a simple creature named Higgins that used to haul rock for old Maltby. When the lamented Judge Bagley tripped and fell down the courthouse stairs and broke his neck, it was a great question how to break the news to poor Mrs. Bagley. But finally the body was put into Higgins' wagon, and he was instructed to take it to Mrs. B., but to be very guarded and discreet in his language, and not break the news to her at once, but do it gradually and gently. When Higgins got there with his sad freight, he shouted till Mrs. Bagley came to the door. Then he said, "'Does the widow Bagley live here?' "'The widow Bagley? No, sir.' "'I'll bet she does. But have it your own way. Well, does Judge Bagley live here?' "'Yes, Judge Bagley lives here.' "'I'll bet he don't. But never mind. It ain't for me to contradict. Is the judge in?' "'No, not at present.' I just expected as much, because, you know, take hold of something, mum, for I'm a, a goin' to make a little communication, and I reckon maybe it'll jar you some. There's been an accident, mum. I've got the old judge curled up out here in the wagon, and when you see him you'll acknowledge yourself that an inquest is about the only thing that could be a comfort to him. The Galaxy, June 1870. Memoranda by Mark Twain. Hogwash. For five years I have preserved the following miracle of pointless imbecility and bathos, waiting to see if I could find anything in literature that was worse. But in vain. I have read it forty or fifty times altogether, and with a steadily increasing pleasurable disgust. I now offer it for competition as the sickliest specimen of sham sentimentality that exists. I almost always get it out and read it when I am low-spirited, and it has cheered many and many a sad hour for me. I will remark, in the way of general information, that in California, that land of felicitous nomenclature, the literary name of this sort of stuff is hogwash. From the California Farmer A Touching Incident Mr. Editor I hand you the following for insertion, if you think it worthy of publication. It is a picture, though brief, of a living reality which the writer witnessed, within a little time since, in a luxurious city. A beautiful lady sat beneath a veranda overshadowed by clustering vines. In her lap was a young infant, apparently asleep. The mother sat, as she supposed, unobserved, and lost in deep meditation richly robed and surrounded with all the outward appearances of wealth and station, wife and mistress of a splendid mansion and garden around it, it would have seemed as if the heart that could claim to be queen here should be a happy one. Alas, appearances are not always the true guide, for that mother sat there like a statue a while, when over her face beamed a sad, sad smile. Then she started and shuddered as if terrible fears were crushing her spirit. Then came the hot tears, and the wife and mother, with all that was seemingly joyous around her, gave herself up to the full sweep of agonizing sorrow. 
i gazed upon this picture for a little while only for my own tears fell freely and without any control the lady was so truthful and innocent to all outward appearances that my own deepest sympathies went out instantly to her and her sorrows this is no fancy sketch but a sad sad reality it occurred in the very heart of our city and witnessing it with deep sorrow i asked myself how can these things be but i remember that this small incident may only be a foreshadowing of some great sorrow deeply hidden in that mother's aching heart the bard of avon says when sorrows come they come not single spies but in battalions i had turned away for a moment to look at some object that attracted my attention when looking again this child of sorrow was drying her eyes carefully and preparing to leave and go within and there will canker sorrow eat her bud and chase the native beauty from her cheek the galaxy june eighteen seventy memoranda by mark twain a literary old offender in court with suspicious property in his possession in last month's memoranda i published a sketch entitled the story of the good little boy who did not prosper and closed it with a dreadful nitroglycerin explosion which destroyed the boy he had unwittingly been sitting on a can of this compound and got his pantaloons greased with it and when he got a reproving spank upon that portion of his system the catastrophe instantly followed there was something so stupendously grotesque about the situation that i was filled with admiration of it and therefore borrowed it i say borrowed it for it was not my invention i found it drifting about the sea of journalism in the shape of a simple statement of the catastrophe in a single sentence and attributed to a california paper i thought at the time that in saying it in the californian unnecessary pains had been taken for such a happy inspiration of extravagance as that could not well have originated elsewhere i used it and stated in a footnote that i borrowed it without the unknown but most ingenious owner's permission i naturally expected that so neat a compliment as that would resurrect the ingenious unknown and bring him to the light of day truly it did produce a spectre but not the one i was looking for the party thus raised hails from philadelphia and in testimony that he is the ingenious unknown he encloses to me a half-column newspaper article dated december twenty second signed with his name and being what he says is the original draft of the nitroglycerin catastrophe the impulse to make pleasant mention of this person's name and give him the credit he claims is crippled by the fact that i or any one else acquainted with his literary history would feel obliged to decline to accept any evidence coming from him upon any matter and especially upon a question of authorship his simple word is worthless and to embellish it with his oath would merely make it picturesque not valuable this person several of us know of our own personal knowledge to be a poor little purloiner of other men's ideas and handicraft it would not be just to call him a literary pirate for there is a sort of manliness about flaunting the black flag in the face of a world and taking desperate chances against death and dishonor that gives a sombre dignity to the pirate's calling but little suggestive of the creeping and stealthy ways of the smaller kind of literary rogues 
but there is a sort of adventurer whom the police detect by a certain humble look in their faces and who when searched yield abundance of spools handkerchiefs napkins spoons and such things acquired by them when the trusting owners left the property openly in their company not thinking any harm the police call this kind of adventurer a blank however upon second thought i will not print the name for it has almost too harsh a sound for polite ears but the philadelphia person i have spoken of will probably recognize a long-lost brother in the description anybody capturing the subject of these remarks and overhauling the catalogue of what he calls his writings will find in it two very good articles of mine and if the rest were advertised as strayed or stolen they would doubtless be called for by journalists residing in all the different states of the union the effrontery of this person in appearing before me through the u s mail and claiming to have originated an idea surpasses anything that has come under my notice lately i cannot conceive of his being so reckless as to deliberately try to originate an idea considering how he is built he knows himself that it would rip and tear and rend him worse than the glycerin did the boy this sad person purloins all his literary materials i fancy and he spreads his damaged remnants before his customers with as happy an admiration as if they were bright and fresh from the intellectual loom with due modesty i venture the prophecy that some day he will even ravish a dying speech from some poor fellow and say with a flourish as he goes out of the world fellow-citizens i die innocent i do not print this party's name because knowing as i do upon what an exceedingly slender capital of merit fame or public invention two or three of the most widely popular lecturers of the day of both sexes got a foothold upon the rostrum i might thus help to pave the way for him to transfer the report of somebody's speech from the papers to his portfolio and step into the lecture arena upon a sudden and comfortable income of ten or fifteen thousand dollars a season i cannot take this person's evidence will the party from whom he pilfered the nitroglycerin idea please send me a copy of the paper in which it first appeared and with the date of the paper intact i shall now soon find out who really invented the exploded boy the galaxy june eighteen seventy memoranda by mark twain widow's lament one of the saddest things that ever came under my notice said the banker's clerk was there in corning during the war dan murphy enlisted as a private and fought very bravely the boys all liked him and when a wound by and by weakened him down till carrying a musket was too heavy work for him they clubbed together and fixed him up as a sutler he made money then and sent it always to his wife to bank for him she was a washer and ironer and knew enough by hard experience to keep money when she got it she didn't waste a penny on the contrary she began to get miserly as her bank account grew she grieved to part with a cent poor creature for twice in her hard working life she had known what it was to be hungry cold friendless sick and without a dollar in the world and she had a haunting dread of suffering so again well at last dan died and the boys in testimony of their esteem and respect for him 
telegraphed to Mrs. Murphy to know if she would like to have him embalmed and sent home, when you know the usual custom was to dump a poor devil like him into a shallow hole, and then inform his friends what had become of him. Mrs. Murphy jumped to the conclusion that it would only cost two or three dollars to embalm her dead husband, and so she telegraphed yes. It was at the wake that the bill for embalming arrived and was presented to the widow. She uttered a wild, sad wail that pierced every heart, and said, Seventy-five dollars for Stuff and Dan blister their souls! Did them divils suppose I was going to stare at the museum, that I'd be dialing in such expensive curiosities?" The banker's clerk said there was not a dry eye in the house. A curious incident, and one which is perfectly well authenticated, comes to us in a private letter from the West. A patriarch of eighty-four was nearing death, and his descendants came from all distances to honor him with the last homage of affection. He had been blind for several years, so completely blind that night and noonday were alike to him. But about half an hour before his death his sight came suddenly back to him. He was as blithe and happy over it as any child could have been, and appeared to be only anxious to make the most of every second of time that was left him wherein to live and enjoy it. He did not waste any precious moments in speculating upon the wonderful nature of the thing that had happened to him, but diligently and hungrily looked at this, that, and the other thing, and luxuriously feasted his famishing vision. Children and grandchildren were marched in review by the bedside. The features of favorites were conned eagerly and searchingly. The freckles on a young girl's face were counted with painstaking interest, and with an unimpeachable accuracy that filled the veteran with gratified vanity. And then, while he read some verses in his testament, his sight grew dim and passed away again, and a few minutes afterward he died. It seems to be a common thing for long-absent reason and memory to revisit the brains of the dying, but the return of vision is a rare circumstance indeed. There is something very touching in this news of Lady Franklin's setting sail at the age of eighty years to go halfway round the globe to get a scrap of Sir John's writing which she has heard is in the possession of a man who will not deliver it to any hands but hers. Here is a love which has lasted through forty years of a common lot, then bridged a grave, and lived on through twenty years of grief which only such an affection is capable of feeling and still at this day, widowed and venerable, is able to mock at the zeal of half the honeymoon loves in the world. End of section 113